Well, good morning once again, everybody. So good to see you and to be able to uh, worship together. And, and that's worship so far. We've worshiped through song. Uh, we've had our time of worship through communion. We've had our time of worship through giving of tithes and offerings, through worship, through being in community with one another. And, and now we're just continuing our time of worship uh, through the opening and reading and, and uh, discussing of God's word. And so really excited to be able to worship with you this morning. Now, uh, what we often do here is, uh, whether if you're new with us or haven't been with us for a while, is we review uh, where we've been in this series. Now, what I'd like to do is, is to do it a little bit differently today because the, the longer we are into a series, the more points that we have to remember. And, and last week I timed it and it took me three minutes and 42 seconds to review everything. And so uh, that's a little long. So what I want to do is just kind of hit on some main points or main ideas, but we won't necessarily have all the previous main points listed out like we have in the past. If you have any questions about the series or want to follow, or sorry, want to catch up, you can go ahead and do that at our website, palmerado.com slash messages, or type in Palmerado Christian Church to a, a podcast and you'll be able to find us there. With that said, uh, this book of Acts is where we've been. And so we uh, took the first four chapters of Acts in our We Are the Church series, which was in August, leading up to our 50th celebration. Uh, and then since, since September 16th, we've been spending the past several weeks continuing through the book of Acts, and we've hit on various topics that haven't always been easy topics, but they're relevant and important for us to dive into. For example, we talked about the idea of our sin and how our sin truly has consequences, even the small ones. But we talked about how sin is important for us to talk through, repent of, and move forward and ask for forgiveness. We also talked about the idea of pressure to, to want to look good on the outside. And so instead of focusing on following what everybody else says and, and yielding to the crowd, we want to yield to the Holy Spirit. We've talked about ideas like transition that can be really tough. How do you navigate that? And we talked about how in order to really just trust in God, allow, allow him to take charge is the best way for us to thrive. We've talked about how maybe for us, we want to reach people far from God, but there are times in which God has to work on us and in us in order for us to reach those who are far from him and how there's some work that needs to be done there. We also hit on the idea of conflict, which can be a difficult discussion. And we talked about what it looks like to have a peacemaker mentality, not just a peacekeeper mentality. And so uh, we talked about that. And then last week we talked about the idea of not focusing so much on repentance and not focusing so much on just not doing bad things, but reminding ourselves that we need to recognize the importance of the Holy Spirit and his presence in our lives. And that he's not something that's just a tool that we want to wield when we need it, but he is God and he is good and he is with us. And so recognizing the power that comes from that, that same Spirit that, what, did not give us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power and of love and a sound mind, which we just sang about. So this morning, as we talk about the Holy Spirit and the encouraging thing of recognizing that he is with us, we must also recognize that if we believe that there is a good, good God, which we do, and we believe in the Bible, which we do, then we must also believe in the fact that there is an enemy who would love to steal, kill, and destroy, which maybe not all of us do yet, but hopefully we'll recognize that in the same way that there's one side of the coin, the spirit is good and he is with us, that the other side of that coin, that there is a spiritual warfare that takes place in and around our lives. And so if we're not privy to that, if we don't recognize that, if we don't open our eyes to that, we could be ill-prepared and it could have devastating consequences. So will you join me in a word of prayer as we dive into this topic? 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are and the fact that you are in this place. Jesus, we thank you for dying in our place. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for making your home in our lives so that we may become who you want us to become. Father, I pray that in this time that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a powerful, impactful, and personal way to each person that's here now or listening online later. Thank you that you are good, that you are with us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wonder if any of you have ever had a time in which you uh, didn't recognize how serious or potentially dangerous something was until it was almost too late. And so for me, uh, my first two years of college, I attended UC San Diego, and it was my first month of my first quarter of my first year. So it was right around Halloween time because uh, they start in the quarter system, so they started later. So it was right around Halloween time in which um, I just started feeling at the end of the day, I just felt like I, my stomach was really hurting. But it was one of those where, honestly, I, I talked to uh, my, my wife at the time. She was my girlfriend, Steph. But I called her, and she's like, you know, you should get that checked out. I'm like, oh, it's, honestly, it's probably just bad cafeteria food. Like, I'll, I'll be fine. This too shall pass. And I was just thinking, I'll be okay. I was up a lot of that night, and I woke up the next morning, and the pain was still uh, so strong. And my wife, again, Steph, was just saying, hey, you should, you should get that checked out. I'm like, yeah, you're, you're probably right, and I should get used to saying that. And I ended up just going uh, to the health center at the, at the university. And at the health center, um, they, they kinda, I laid down, and they just kind of poked and prodded, asked a couple questions, and they said, okay, your appendix is about to burst. We need to give you into, get you into emergency surgery tonight. And so like, this is a health center. Like we don't have, you know, we're not ready for surgery, but right down the corner is Thornton Hospital. I want you to go there and they will take care of your surgery. Now, I, I don't remember everything about after the surgery. What I do remember is that uh, Steph had come down and, and was with me after that just to be around. Um, I was told that uh, I sang uh, A Whole New World from Aladdin in my stupor of morphine, which I think should be encouraging to you that in my like decreased state of awareness, I'm singing Aladdin show tunes. Um, I also uh, was told that the, the doctor, I remember the surgeon saying that uh, my appendix was gnarly, which I did not know was a medical term. Um, and so that was fun. And I remember just kind of afterwards, I had stitches here uh, on, on my, where my scar is now. And I was debating, like, should I just walk around for Halloween just with, like, stitches? And like, oh, I didn't. No one wants to see that. But I just had this moment of I didn't realize how dangerous that really was. I had no idea that had I waited another day, had I waited more hours, I don't know how quickly, but it was about to burst. And I could have been in, in, a, in a heap of trouble. If those toxins of the appendix burst and then it becomes uh, unsafe, right, and really dangerous. And I just wasn't aware of how serious the situation I was in. Maybe for some of you, you, you don't have that kind of, maybe you have a medical story. Maybe that's your story. Maybe for some of you is you don't realize that the friends you've been making at school were the friends that... They seem okay, but the more and more you're around them, the more you realize they, they might be leading you into a path of, of falling away from God, a path that might lead you astray. Maybe in your marriages, it's something where, you know, things aren't that bad. No, we don't talk about stuff a lot, but you know, they're not that bad and you're not fully aware of the divide and the chasm and the canyon that has started to come in between you two. And because you don't want to talk about it, it means you're not fully aware of it and you don't fully recognize the 
chaotic, difficult ramifications that could come from that. Maybe for some of you, it's those corners that you, that you cut at work because you just want to be more efficient. Or, or those numbers that you put on the reports that are maybe not fully accurate, but they're fully intended of being good. And, and it's those little corners that we try to shortcut that cause us to not fully be aware that we might feel like it's a little white lie, but anytime our integrity is divided, it's important for us to repent of that. I mean, there's various things, but we may not fully be aware of how serious the world around us, and not just within ourselves, but also the, the things that are prevalent in our culture, the, the truths that we've grown up to believe to be true, and things that have shaped the way that we live. And we don't fully recognize with those examples, the final example of that, we are in spiritual warfare. That in the same way that we believe that there is a good, good God, that we recognize that there is an enemy to that good, good God who would love nothing more to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus came that we may have life and life to the full. And so if we were just to come in and not recognize that there's a war, there's not recognize anything's going on, we would be in a place where we may not realize how dangerous this really is. To be a Christian who loves Jesus but is unaware of spiritual warfare, we may not recognize how difficult and dangerous that is until it's too late. And so our main point this morning is this idea that spiritual warfare is both real and powerful. But... So is our God, and he is victorious. That we must recognize the validity of the fact that spiritual warfare is real. Because we believe the Bible, and we can't just believe the good things of it. We have to believe the whole story of it. And there are many times that Jesus encountered demonic forces, spiritual warfare, the enemy attacking and we see that in the story of the church. So we cannot just say, oh, we want to believe in a good God, but not in the adversary on the other side. But with that being said, we want, to be, we want to remember that we need to believe it, but God is real and powerful as well, and he's victorious. So we're going to have three main areas we're going to dive into this morning. We're going to be in Ephesians 6. So I want you to maybe put your bulletin in Ephesians 6 as a way to placeholder, and then also put uh, a bulletin or, or some other piece of paper into Acts 19. We're going to kind of go back and forth between those passages this morning. So the first point for you in, in your notes is that the struggle is real. The struggle is real. And here's how we see this um, communicated by Paul to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That Paul uses this term in verse 12, struggle, very specifically, because as Archibald Thomas Robertson in his commentary about word pictures of the New Testament, what he describes as the word struggle is this idea of a wrestling match. It's this idea of two People fighting until one hurls the other down and holds him down in submission. So this is a battle. This is a struggle. This is something that when we are in a relationship with Jesus, whether we know it or not, we have a target upon our backs. Because the enemy would love to just neuter Christians and the power that we have in the Holy Spirit. He would love for us to just think that it's about not doing bad things rather than taking hold of the good things for which we've been created. 
He would love for us to just think that we can live to be comfortable rather than to take comfort in the one who calls us to truly live. And so we look at this idea that Timothy Keller, he paints to us this picture that I want to take a few moments to dive into, is that there are two, when it comes to this real struggle, there are two equal and opposite errors into which people can fall when it comes to the whole subject of devils and the demonic and spiritual warfare. There are these two errors, and you can remember them like this. There is superstition and there is substition. So let's take a few moments to look into those two words. The first one in your notes, superstition, is this idea of overbelief. Overbelief. That you think about when you use Microsoft Word um, or Pages, for those of you that use Macs, but this idea that you would have, when you have a text, there's superscript, right? That's the one that goes above the text. And then there's subscript, the one that goes below. So super means over or above. Sub means below or under. So this idea of superstition is this idea of overbelief. That we, as Timothy Keller says, by superstition, we mean an unhealthy overinterest in the subject and attributing too much power to them and to the spiritual warfare. This would be the idea of looking and saying, oh my gosh, traffic is horrible. The devil's out to get me today. This would be the idea of, oh my gosh, I can't find two matching socks. I'm facing deep persecution. <laughs> and, and it's this idea that there is a place where we could overemphasize the power of our enemy, that our enemy is real. But unlike God, the enemy has been created. He was created as an angel and he, and he fell from grace. Unlike our God, the enemy is not all powerful. And so we may believe that, oh my gosh, the devil has all the ability to do all these different things, that yes, he is powerful, and yes, he is real, but he's not on the level of God. And so what we recognize is that we could give too much credit to the devil. We could give too much over-interest, over-belief into thinking, oh my goodness, it's, the devil's out to get me, he's doing everything out to get to me, and it's all these things, whereas, yes, he's out to get us, but it may not be every single detail of our lives. Maybe he'll find a foothold, but it doesn't mean if we have a bad day that the devil is behind it. It doesn't mean that if we fall into temptation, quote, the devil made me do it. That's not true, because we all respond to temptation. Jesus was tempted by the devil. The sin isn't in the temptation. It's how you respond to it. And so if temptation was a sin, Jesus would have sinned. He did it. It's not. So it's how do we respond in that and not give too much credit. The devil made me do it. But the flip side of that is this idea of substition. Again, this idea of underbelief. This idea that we don't believe that there's any such thing as spiritual warfare. And to talk about it is, is a little too charismatic for us. It's a little too spiritually weird for us. It's a little eerie-feary. I don't feel good about it. It's just not real. I don't believe it. Um, Timothy Keller describes it this way. It's either a disbelief in them being spiritual warfare at all, or generally a kind of riding them out of your way, I'm sorry, out of your day-to-day -day existence. Like, ah, oh, it doesn't really affect me. Those, those types of things only happen in really dark places or only happen to really spiritual people, but not me. I can be comfortable and, and that doesn't count for me. That we think that this is the idea of... Um, in our context for Acts 19, there's a story right before this passage, and it's called the story of, of the sons of Siva. And the sons of Siva are these seven sons of this high priest, this Jewish high priest Siva, and these sons would go out and they would be kind of itinerant uh, Jewish rabbis who would, who would 
proclaimed to be able to be able to do these powerful things like get rid of demons and all this stuff. Well, they would go and they found a demon-possessed man and, and they saw that Paul's ministry, that he could call on the name of Jesus and demons fled. And so they, would, they went to this demon in Acts 19 earlier in the passage. And they say, um, in the name of Jesus and in Paul whom he preaches, we command you to get out. And, and, and the, the demon-possessed person looks and the demon says, Jesus I know, Paul I've heard of, but I don't know you. And he attacks, the demon-possessed man attacks the sons of Siva. You'll read it. They get attacked. They're wounded. They leave naked. And it's just like this, cra this crazy embarrassment of the fact that they tried to mess with something that they didn't really have a relationship in the name of Jesus to be able to go against. And that's this idea of we think that's all that spiritual warfare is. And so because we don't face those situations, that there's a substitution, that that's for another time in history or another people group or others, not for me. And we downplay it. We underbelieve the importance that spiritual warfare can have on our lives. Warren Wearsby, he hits on this idea for us that sooner or later, every believer discovers that the Christian life is a battleground, not a playground, and that he faces an enemy who is much stronger than he is, key words here, apart from the Lord, that apart from the Lord, we are not able to stand against the devil's schemes. Apart from the Lord, we could not stand firm against temptation. Apart from the Lord, it would be like us showing up into a battle, not wearing armor, not ready with a sword in hand or with, with the proper equipment, but showing up in t-shirt, jeans, flip-flops, and thinking that we're ready to face an onslaught of a powerful enemy. And so, we recognize that, yes, the struggle is real. Our next point for us here is the idea that the enemy, we've been referring to as Ephesians 6 talks about, the enemy has schemes. The enemy is scheming. He's working underneath that, yes, he may overtly try to attack, and that happens, but he will also covertly try to distract and to discourage and to make lies seem like truth and make truth seem like lies so then we don't know what we believe anymore. And so we're going to dive into Acts 19 now, and we're going to start in verse 23, and we're going to follow the story of Demetrius, a silversmith worker, and see how perhaps there's some ways that the devil schemes that we see here in Acts 19. I wonder if perhaps we could recognize some similarities between how the enemy may try to be working in our lives, in our nation today. Verse 23 says, About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines for, of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. And there is danger that not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, she will be robbed of her divine majesty. 
that we pull out three small but powerful ways the enemy is scheming in this passage and may recognize that these three small but powerful ways may be ways that he's scheming in our nation today and in our world. The first one that we see is the love of money. We recognize that when he's talking, he says that um, in verse 24, they made silver shrines brought to the, in a lot of business. He brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. And they made a good living, a good income, as verse 25 talks about. That for the love of money, they were, did not want the gospel to be truly preached. Because if the gospel is truly preached, they would lose out on their money. We see that Warren Wearsby talks about that wherever the gospel is preached in power, it will be opposed by people who make money from superstition and sin. So think about this. Let's, let's pull this thread a little bit about the love of money, that we recognize that the love of money, that we may not say this, but our culture tells us that we need to be able to, to have all the money that we need so that we could be self-sustaining, self-dependent, that we don't need to rely on God or anyone or anything else. And so in so doing, we will work really hard to get to our career and we'll work really hard to achieve that amount of money that helps us to feel secure and safe. And so in order for us to, to make that amount of money, perhaps that means that we sacrifice our integrity in some areas. But again, it's okay because I want to provide for my family and I want to have the kind of life that I think is worthy of me having because I compare myself to all those around me. And so maybe we, we cut our integrity a little bit, but maybe where that really goes a little bit further is that we want to get into a good school because if I have a good school with the right degree from the right name, that I'll be able to get into the right job that will give me the right career to make the right amount of money so I can live a life that I think is right. But maybe it doesn't even start there. Maybe it's in high school students and middle school students who are taught that you can't even get into that good school until you are so overwhelmed with how hard you are working and that you sacrifice all, this other, all these other things so that you can do whatever it takes to get into the right school and that you can get the right grades to get you into the right school, to get you with the right name, to get you into the right career, to get you the right amount of money. And then maybe it's not even that. Maybe it's the fact that growing up that we feel this pressure to get our, as parents, we feel pressure to have our kids be perfect because we recognize that if they're perfect, then maybe they'll be able to experience the right school and the right grades and the right place and the right career and the right amount of money. So we may not say it, but many of us may be living it, this idea of the love of money being a thread that goes to so much of what we do, how we act, what we encourage our kids to do. In fact, it may be the same reason why we have kids going to all these different extracurriculars because we want to make sure that they look good to get into the right college to do the right things and to get the right amount of money. I'm not saying this is for everyone, but for many people, if, if we evaluate, that might be a thread that pulls back to the belief and love that or the belief that the love of money will provide for us ultimately. Now we see that in 2 Timothy, that, or 1 Timothy 6 rather, that money is not the root of all evil. Money can be used for good things. But what does Paul say? He says the love of money can be a root of all kinds of evil. Not the only root, but absolutely a root. And it's the love of money that can perpetuate that. That Warren Wearsby says the silversmiths in this passage were really more concerned about their jobs and their income than they were about Diana. Real quick, Roman goddess Diana and the Greek goddess Artemis are the same in the culture. So your passage, if you're in the NIV, says Artemis. That's the Greek version. And Warren Wearsby, he's talking about Diana, Roman version. Same thing. Don't get confused. Um, so he's really more concerned about their income than about Diana and her temple. But they were wise enough not to make that known. It wasn't like, okay, because we don't, we don't want to lose money, so make sure you believe in the goddess that we always say we believe in. 
But the love of money is the thread that we pull back and see how it impacted so much of what they were doing and how it impacts so much of what we do. The next one we talk about is idolatry. Idolatry. We've talked about idolatry in, in various sermons in the past. In the worship sermon we talked about the very first week was that everyone worships something, but who we worship is everything. And we looked at the golden calf incident in Exodus. And so we've talked about these things. We will talk about them because they're so prevalent, but we won't spend a lot of time in there for now. But what we will do is to recognize that part of the way that the enemy was working through Demetrius and the silversmiths and working in that situation was to get them to promote idolatry in that which they did. Warren Wearsby says, Demetrius and his silversmiths were promoting idolatry and immorality to make a living while Paul was declaring the true God and pointing people to cleansing and purity through the free grace of God. That again, this idea that Paul was speaking the truth, that idols have no actual power. That in our lives, the idol of being a self-made man, a self-made woman who pulled themselves up by their bootstraps that came from rags and made it all the way up through the sweat of their brow and the perseverance of their spirit to the riches of living the right kind of life that the American dream tells us that we need to live or else we're a failure. That that idolatry of us being able to do that, as my previous pastor would say, that you say you want to be a self-made man or a self-made woman, but he would say, but what part of yourself did you actually make? That all of the gifts, all of the abilities, everything that you've been given has been given, as Deuteronomy says, by God. And so even that which we would use to make money is given to us by God. We look at this idea that this idolatry, that we believe that we could be a self-made person. Or in this case, they were promoting the worship of Artemis because, oh, she's a great goddess and she is worshiped and praised throughout all of Asia. We may not overtly say it, but we would all the time talk about being self-made as an idol. Fulfilling the American dream is an idol. Maybe being ultimately productive and so we're very efficient can be an idol to the sake of which we are ignoring the people around us. Maybe we say that we face idolatry and just trying to be perfect in every single way and then in so doing, we gloss over our imperfections and we try to hide those things and lose our integrity and our souls in the process. That maybe, just maybe, if our eyes aren't open, we will not be aware of the idolatry that we are tempted with and we face all around us until it's too late. And then lastly, in this section of the enemy is scheming, the last thing that Demetrius hits on is their nationalistic pride. The idea that he talks about that, you know, if not only is it just in verse 27, there's a danger that not only our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped through the province of Asia and the world, would be robbed of her divine majesty. That the temple of Artemis was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. That Ephesus was known throughout the world and had a great nationalistic name for being the house of the goddess of Artemis. And, and oh my goodness, it's not just we're being selfless. It's not just our income, but our whole nation would be put into question. That which we've been known for would be put into question. And so we couldn't have that. And I wonder, I wonder if we're honest with ourselves and we're honest with the state of the United States, and if we're honest of the state of the world as a whole, if the love of money, idolatry, 
and nationalistic pride could be something that we could say is living and rampant in our lives today. That's because of the love of money that drug dealers can make what they do what they do. That's because of the love of money that human traffickers do what they do. That's the love of money that people who scam other people out of their money can do what they do. That it's because of idolatry that we would sacrifice our family, sacrifice our, our integrity, sacrifice things at the altar of wanting to have that perfect life, to be a self-made man or self-made woman, and to have a rags-to-riches story when truly there's nothing more counterculture than not a rags-to-riches person, but the fact that we have a God who went from the riches of heaven to the rags of a manger and flips that script upside down. And I wonder if there's this idea that any nation across the world that would then, like the Jewish culture did in the Old Testament, say, okay, everybody else is unclean. Everybody else is less than. Everybody else is worse. That you can love, we can love our nation without hating other people. We can love our nation without saying that well, everybody else is on the outside and everybody else is bad. We can love our nation by praying for our nation by being a light in our nation, by being the change that we want to see in our nation, that we can see that nationalistic pride, idolatry, and love of money can separate us from the path that God has for us. And it's a way that the enemy covertly can come underneath the surface and can underneath the surface cause disruptions in a broken foundation rather than our firm foundation in Jesus. So what do we do? How do we face this? And what is next? Because if the struggle is real and the enemy is scheming, it seems that we'd be without hope except for the fact of your last point that the victory is certain. That spoiler alert, God wins. Jesus won. And the enemy would love to take as many people down as possible in the midst of that. But it's like an animal that's already been attacked and is already going to lose and is slashing out to take as many people as he can with him. But the victory is certain that Jesus declared death dead. Oh, death, where is your sting? That victory happens in a relationship with Jesus alone. That we were once far from God because we had sinned and Jesus bridged that gap so that we may have eternal life and relationship with him, which is what we were created for in the beginning. So the victory is certain. So what do we do? We're going to jump back to Ephesians 6. It talks about how the first thing is to put on the full armor of God. Verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That Warren Wearsby says that Satan wants to use our external enemy, the world, and our internal enemy, the flesh, to defeat us. His weapons and battle plans are formidable. There is power and we do have a target on our backs but because we have a target on our backs paul encourages the ephesians in this chapter who again saw this riot take place they they were the city that church that saw this attack happen he encourages them not to flee in which the target on your back is more prevalent but to stand firm to stand firm. How do we do that? Verses 13 through 17 of Ephesians 6. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when, when the day of evil comes, not 
if it comes, not we hope it doesn't come, not let's just in case it, do this in case it comes, but when it, day of evil, when it comes, that you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything else, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Stand firm. And after you've done everything else, stand. Because if... The enemy will try to get us one-on-one and isolate us and try to attack us one-on-one as a, a struggle that will be one wrestler versus another. But if we, apart from the Lord, try to do that, we will lose. But in the power of the Lord, being strong in the Lord, that we are able to have power that is not from us, but is of the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, that we are able to experience true power to stand firm because on our own, we couldn't do this, but by the power of God and relationship with God, we can face the temptations and struggles through the armor of God. And that if we, shoulder by shoulder, if we all lined up with the armor of God, and being able to stand up against the enemy. What does Jesus say in Matthew 16 when talking to Peter? He says that the gates of Hades cannot stand against the church, which shows that there is the ability to not just protect ourselves through prayer, through coming alongside one another, but that there is the ability for as the church, the capital C church, to advance against the army of the evil one and to experience great victory. That the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, cannot stand against the church standing firm in the power of God and taking away the enemy's arguments, taking away those schemes of the enemy. Lastly, the idea that we would pray at all times. Ephesians 6, 18 through 20, just to close out the armor of God passage says, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So we can put on the full armor. We can stand firm. But if we're not praying, we are losing. That Exodus 17, when the Israelites were fighting the Amalekites, as long as Moses' arms were held up in prayer, they were winning. Once he was too weak and he didn't have his attendants there to help him, they started losing. If we are not praying, we are losing the battle. Praying at all times for leadership, for our country, for our families, for our world. And in the commentary about the armor of God in Ephesians 6, Warren Wearsby refers to our Acts 19 passage that we've been reading through this morning. And he says, During Paul's ministry in Ephesus, a riot took place that could have destroyed the church. It wasn't caused only by Demetrius and his associates, for behind them were Satan and his associates. But certainly Paul and the church prayed, and the opposition was silenced. That in that story, Paul was told not to go into Ephesus to, to combat the riots because the, his people, his, the church knew that he would surely be killed. So they came to the side. And, and in fact, there was a Jewish man, Alexander, who he came up and he was trying to distance himself from Paul. But once the Ephesians found out that he was a Jewish person, that he then was yelled off the stage and they would say, great is Artemis 
of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And it says in verse 35 of Acts 19 that they chanted that for two hours straight. That such was the nationalism and such was the idolatry in their lives that they were so prevalent on saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they kept repeating it over and over and over again. But the clerk came, and a, a Roman clerk, and he came and said, listen, we don't start a riot here. Paul hasn't done anything wrong. He's just saying another God is God. And again, in Roman mythology, that there are plenty of gods. So he wasn't downgrading Artemis. He was elevating Jesus. And so they're saying he hasn't done anything wrong. So we must leave. So Paul wasn't there, but God was still fighting. And surely the church was praying, and as Warren Wiersbe said, and the opposition was silenced. So what does this mean for you? You sitting in this room right now or listening online later, what does it mean for you? Does it mean that maybe for far too long we've been unaware of the spiritual warfare that we're into, that, we're, that we are experiencing? Does it mean that we are showing up like in Braveheart and we, we don't even have blue paint, we don't have any armor, we don't have anything going on. Instead, we're just showing up in a tunic hoping that we don't get attacked because we're unaware of the battle that we are in. Is it possible that we're following too much of superstition and giving the enemy too much credit or, or substition when we're thinking that the enemy doesn't even exist? Is it possible that we believe too much of the enemy's schemes and fell into the love of money or idolatry or nationalistic pride? Not because those things are bad in of themselves. Money can be used for good things. Idolatry is often what happens when we make a good thing the ultimate thing of our lives. And Nationalistic pride, we can love our nation, but we can love our nation by loving people too and by praying for our nation. Is it possible that we're falling into those? Or maybe you're here and you're just saying, listen, this is fine from theory, but from my life, I've prayed for God to help me with something and I feel like he's not answered me. That I still have this struggle, this temptation that I feel like God is not listening that I still do the same thing over and over again. The evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing, but the good I want to do, I do not do. And if that's you, I want to encourage you with Paul, what he shares in 2 Corinthians 12, that there was a thorn in his flesh. He knew not why it was there, but Jesus spoke to him. He didn't answer, here's why I'm not removing it from you. He just says, listen, my grace is sufficient for you. And I'm fighting for you. That maybe some of you don't think that God is fighting for you. Maybe some of you think that he is more lamb than he is lion. But I want to point to you just one verse. We're not going to go to the whole thing, but one verse from the story of David and Goliath. When David confronts Goliath and he speaks to him, this is what he says. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. That the enemy will come to us with sword of, of idolatry, with the spear of love of money, with the javelin of nationalistic pride, or any other scheme of the enemy. And he will come and try to attack, but, but we fight not on our own, not apart from God. We fight with the Lord Almighty at our side. And this term, Almighty, we might just think he's a strong God. Like we think Lord the strong with Almighty, but in the Hebrew, Almighty was not just a term of strength. It was a term that emphasized God's warlike characteristics. 
Then Exodus 15, after they get to the Red Sea, it says, the Lord is a warrior, the Lord is his name. That at the breath of his nostrils, it, it separated the Red Sea and they were able to make it through. That we recognize that almighty is a term that describes an actual military rank and that God is the general, he's the almighty, which means he's the general of angel armies that will come and fight for us. Doesn't mean we always see them. But like in 2 Kings 6, when Elisha has his servant and they're surrounded by the, by the enemy, and they, uh, the servant says, what do I do? What do I do? What are we going to do? And Elisha says, Lord, may, he, may you open his eyes to see. And he looks to the heavens. And surrounding them were angel armies. And he recognized for maybe the first time that spiritual warfare is real. Amen. And it's powerful. But so is our God, and he is victorious. Spoiler alert, God's won. And we get to join in that victory. So for us this morning, in light of this past week, when we see bombs being sent to someone that's on a different side of the aisle than us, within that person. When we see a tree of life synagogue where people are worshiping and they're killed for no other reason than their faith. When we see that division and, and, and lies and slander and hatred, when we see in our nation that these are things that are prevalent and then we pull back and see this isn't just our nation, this is the world that there is division and anger and hatred and sin and that it causes horrible things to happen because people are doing horrible things. When we see that, may we respond the way the Ephesian church did during the ride with Demetrius. That Warren Wearsby, he says this again as a reminder, certainly Paul and the church prayed and the opposition was silenced. Certainly. As we look around and we survey a lost world, a broken world, a world that is a dark world, and the rulers, authorities, and the powers of this dark world are reigning supreme, that when division and anger and slander and hatred cause people to, to fight, that division, anger, slander, and hatred are not the way the, world, the Lord works, that we would be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, that we would be certainly praying against the opposition, and may the opposition be silenced. I'm not saying that it's going to be automatic that we're going to become a utopian society. What I am saying is that we can love our society, that we could pray for our people and that God can heal our lands. That if we stand up and pray and in humility ask that we can be fighting the front lines of this battle for our families, for our cities, for our nation, for our world, and for our God to be made known. And maybe it means that we reach out to the synagogue right down Palmerado Road. Say, how can we be praying for you? Tell us your story. How are you feeling in the midst of this? And making a way of peacemaking in a way that there is no way. Maybe it means that we just set a, a, a chime every hour to pray for something or someone in need every day. That we would pray at all times and that certainly the church would pray and opposition would be ceased. That yes, Great is he who is in the world, but greater is he that is in us. And may we remember that spiritual warfare is real and it is powerful. 
but so is our God, and he is victorious. May we rest in that victory this morning. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that you are here in this place. Jesus, thank you for dying in our place. And Holy Spirit, thank you for making your place in our hearts. And Lord, we pray that if we are facing spiritual warfare, God, that we would be able to stand firm and that we would be able to ask for prayer so that we're not isolated, which is exactly what the enemy would want us to do, but that we would be united, that we would come alongside one another. Lord, I pray that we would continue to be a light in a dark place, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, that would see the brokenness of a world around us and recognize that if we just stay comfortable in our chairs, that lives won't be changed, but rather we would step out and be on the front lines, knowing that when we are united and on the front lines, that even the gates of Hades cannot stand against your church. I pray that you would help each of us to know that you are lion and lamb. You fight for us and you lay down your life for us. May we worship you now for who you are, that you didn't leave us alone, that you fight, that you lay down your life as both lion and lamb. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now this morning as we sing our final song, if, if you would like to come forward for prayer, I get it. I get that it's hard to come forward. I get that there's lights on and people might see you and I get that that might feel uncomfortable. But I also get that if we aren't bold in asking for prayer, that we will isolate ourselves to the point where we won't ever think we need it or we'll be too scared to ever ask for it in our moment of need. So may this continue to be a, not just a church building, but as Jesus said, a house of prayer. So if you need to come forward for prayer, I'm here. I know other people would love to pray with you. If you just need to respond and worship this morning through song, do that. If you need to ask for prayer for someone next to you, it doesn't have to be a pastor with a microphone on his face to pray for you, right? You could pray for each other. But may we not be afraid of the battle. May we know that God is with us in the battle. And spoiler alert, he wins.